The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. And we're going to actually begin reading in chapter 8. We've got a goal tonight of summarizing and reading a section of chapter 7 through 10. And so we're going to cover a large portion of Scripture. Um, the reason being, if you've been with us through any of the studies on the prophets that we have been walking through, uh, you'll know there's some repetitive themes that we have looked to. Uh, the prophets often called out the people of God for their sin and brought an indictment against them, charging their sins against them, naming them in order, hopefully, to awaken the people uh, to the sinfulness of their sin. Uh, the prophets would mention judgment of God that was coming upon them, that was impending because of their waywardness, because of their rebellion. There would be calls to repentance, and then there would be promises of ultimate restoration. And so we've seen those themes occur over and over again. And just to remind you, the book of Jeremiah is really a collection of the sermons of Jeremiah throughout his life. And so even within... Uh, his sermons, there have been, chapter by chapter, these recurring themes that we have seen over and over again. And yet, as we look to them over and over again, what I hope you have found, and even found tonight, is that each prophet speaks with their own, really with their own heart, and their own style, and with their own illustrations and imagery that they utilize as God leads them to. All written of God, all delivered by God, but spoken through differing personalities, different people that God utilized as the prophets to bring forth His Word to the people. It has been recorded and preserved uh, by the inspiration even of the Holy Spirit, the oversight of the Spirit as He has preserved it uh, generation by generation for our reading tonight and for our learning tonight that it teaches us about God. It teaches us about God who does not change, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it teaches us about our own self, believe it or not, because people back then aren't much different than people are now. You know, go to a different country and you think initially, goodness, it's so different. I've been there on a, a two-week, just two-week, two-week mission internship in Costa Rica. And initially, few, first few days, you think everything is so different, different food, different language, different culture. But the more you're there and the more you get to uh, build a relationship with people, what you find is the human heart is the human heart. There is a universal human nature that transcends cultures and even generations as we go back. The problem of sin has always been the problem of sin. And mankind has been sinful in need of salvation. And so what we read and we learn about them uh, applies very directly to what we know about ourselves tonight. About our need of recognizing our sin our need of taking heed to the warning of God's judgment, our need of repentance and belief and turning to God, and even the heart of God to forgive all those who turn to Him. The title written over the, really the whole series for Jeremiah, right underneath the title up top that I used, The Weeping Prophet, uh, that has been a, a long time uh, title that has been given to Jeremiah course, not at all original to me. It's been utilized for hundreds and hundreds of years as the, the, it's kind of a, just a nickname for the prophet Jeremiah. He's known as the weeping prophet. Why? Uh, because of his heart for the people. 
because of his heart that was so impassioned, that was so moved even in sorrow for the sake of the people to whom he was delivering this message of judgment, even as they hated him all the more for the message that God gave him to deliver, he was heartbroken over their rejection of God. He was heartbroken over their sin and their rebellion and their waywardness. We're going to begin in a passage that highlights that heart of Jeremiah for the people of God. Jeremiah chapter 8, and I want to read verses 18 through chapter 9 and verse 2. Follow along as I read aloud. Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 18. Jeremiah speaking of himself, he says, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint within me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with their foreign idols? Verse 20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. And then he says, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. The sin of now the southern kingdom, Judah, remember after Solomon, Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the north and the south. The north maintains the title Israel. The south was known by the tribe of Judah because that was predominantly what the south was comprised of. And so Judah, the capital city of Jerusalem there in Judah, even as from the very beginning Israel uh, turned towards false worship, they they did not want to worship in Jerusalem as God had commanded because of the division of the kingdom. And so they set up their own form of worshiping God in a false way against His Word. Very soon thereafter, Baal worship became an intricate part of the worship in Israel. Israel, for many, 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 many generations, has been no different than pagan people. Not following God. Totally the Word of God. That nation, the northern part of the nation of Israel, fell before Jeremiah's writing. Assyria came in, uh, overtook Israel, knocked on Jerusalem's door, and God spared Jerusalem for a little while longer. A couple generations now, Jerusalem, Judah, has been embracing idolatry, disregarding the Word of God, the commands of God. We've seen in weeks past just how much wickedness was going on in that day and age, in the people of God even, the injustices that were being committed, the bribery to judges, the prophets were giving prophecies based upon who paid the most money. Uh, It was a corrupt, corrupt day and age for the people of God. And Jeremiah is weeping. He's weeping over the condition of the nation of Israel. 
the condition of the people of God. And I want us to begin by focusing on verse 22, where he, lamenting, asks this rhetorical question, Is there no balm in Gilead? And we read it and think, What is balm and what is Gilead got to do with balm? Um, Balm was an ointment made of uh, leaves or plants or herbs, however they would formulate whatever uh, balm that they were creating. And it was used, just as we may think of a balm today being used, as an ointment of some sort, a a lotion of some sort that would be uh, medicinal. That if you've got arthritis, there's a certain cream that would be utilized to help with arthritis for rashes, different ointments, different balms would be utilized. And that day and age, in the limited uh, availability of medicine that they had, this balm from the region of Gilead, it was an area known for the creation of this balm that was primarily used for all of those purposes, for bruising, for uh, joint aches, muscle aches, for um, infections even. This, this ointment would often, this balm, be utilized for such purposes medicinally. Uh, it would be in our minds, synonymous with healing balm. Balm that would be used for some sort of uh, medical purpose. And so he asks, with a question of the greater spiritual question behind it, this rhetorical question, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And the answer in the uh, reader of this question back in that day would have said, of course there's balm in Gilead. That's where you get balm from. It's all the stuff's grown there in Gilead. It was notorious for that. Of course there's physicians there that, that, that utilize this balm to help treat the, the ailment. And the spiritual question being asked basically is, is there no healing in Israel? It's, it's paralleling even his questions above uh, there in verse 19. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Is not Jerusalem the city of God? Where is God? A rhetorical question in the midst of all the sin of the people. And Jeremiah's point is that he's right there in the middle. He's just being ignored. There is no spiritual healing that's coming to the people of God in the midst of Zion. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no spiritual healing that the one true living God can offer to His people? The answer is, of course there is. And then it poses the question, well, why? Why are they not healed? Why has the healing balm not been applied by the great physician? I want to summarize and the context surrounding what we just read, the reasonings that God is giving through the prophet Jeremiah, why spiritual healing has not come upon God's people. Let's begin. Most of this is reviewing what's already been said, but being said again in a a different way. First, notice their religion was superficial. They had a form of worship. They went to church on Sunday. Okay? They might even went to church on Wednesday night. They had a religion, but it was superficial. It was a surface level only worship of God. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house 
and proclaimed there this word. So this is known as Jeremiah's first temple sermon. He literally came to the house, so to speak. He went to the temple where this false worship, this superficial occurring, and it would be as if on a Sunday morning, a prophet of God were to barge in the door right there and begin delivering these words to the congregation that had assembled. He says, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. And he says, do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and then in the New King James, are these. We read it in English and we're thinking, what in the world is this talking about? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Let me explain it to you. What Jeremiah is accusing the people of God of of doing is using the temple almost as a sort of good luck charm. Basically as a sort of get out of jail card. As a, I've got my fire insurance is what we would kind of word it as in our day and age with the like false profession of, of salvation or getting baptized or walking an aisle and you, you've got your get out of hell free card and, and then you go about and live any way you want to doing all the things that you know God says you ought not to be doing. No heart to pursue God. No heart to obey God and the Word of God. Uh, just You've got your religion and your rituals and you think by those things that you will be okay before God. They thought that the temple would prevent God from letting any harm come to them. And so even rebuting the warning that Jeremiah gave, that God was giving through the prophet Jeremiah, that listen, the Babylonians are coming in, and the Babylonians are going to wipe out Jerusalem and lay it flat if you don't stop doing this wickedness, if you don't repent. And you know what they would say? The temple! The temple! We're here worshiping in the temple. The temple is the house of God. God would never let His temple be destroyed. They had a sort of arrogant presumption that the Lord would not do what Jeremiah was warning that God was going to do. And they were using their superficial, ritualistic worship as a means of comforting their heart and even thinking they're worshiping God in spite of a life We'll talk about the life next, but the life that was being lived totally contrary to God. Go to verse 21. We'll pick up there. Verse 21, he continues, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat, for I did not speak to you, or for I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of what? Of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward since that day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent you all of my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. And so God is 
bringing a judgment upon them, indicting them over their sin, that they, they had a form of worship. They were offering the sacrifices. But God says, I didn't command to the people first to bring these sacrifices. These sacrifices were actually secondary. What was primary was that I commanded them, obey me. Obey me and follow me. And then he mentions these sacrifices. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22, the words of Samuel to Saul, when Saul thought he could disobey the word of God because it meant he could offer a little bit of sacrifice and the spoils of war that they kept when God said, what did God have to say to, to Saul? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And so they thought, one, I've got the temple in Jerusalem. There's no way God's going to destroy the temple. That's sort of our good luck charm. That's our get out of hell free card, get out of judgment free card. Secondly, they thought here that I'm giving my sacrifices we're, we're, we're obeying the basic components of the, the ritualistic form of the worship that God required. And so if we're doing the, the sacrifice, then I, it doesn't matter what I go do throughout the rest of my life. If I'm there at church on Sunday and Wednesday, it doesn't matter what I do with my own private life. We, we draw a dichotomy and we, we separate our private lives from our life. And even as three times, often three times separated, we've got our private life, our public work life, and then our religious life. And modern day American culture wants to say, you've got to keep all of those separate. And what you do in your religion, you keep over here. What you do in your private life, you do over here. And what you do in your public life, you've got over here. And, and here, the people have done the same thing in a way. They compartmentalize their worship of God. And God says, no, 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 no. And what God says, I see it all. And God says, I own it all. Go to chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. They wanted the worship of God without regarding the Word of God. Think about that one in our day and age. They wanted the worship of God without the Word of God. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribes certainly works falsehood. So, so the, the scribes were not get delivering the Word of God. They delivered a Word that was not the Word of God. The wise men are ashamed, verse 9. They are dismayed and taken. Why? Behold, they have rejected the Word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? They wanted a worship of God while disregarding the Word of God strong warning here for us to not think that our religion earns us favor with God. That the moment that we think that our being here in church, our singing, our sacrifices that we make are, are pleasing to God in the sense of earning His favor is the moment that we are on very shaky, very dangerous ground. James writes it this way when he talks about pure religion. James 1 and verse 27, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to be in church Sunday morning and Wednesday night, to read your Bible and pray every day, um, to give of your offerings and your tithes, to dress in a churchy fashion, to... We put a lot of words into what it means to have pure and undefiled religion. 
What does James say? Pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and then to keep himself unspotted from the world. He doesn't turn to religious ritualistic practices, but there is a place for that. Don't hear me wrong. Don't forsake the assembling of yourself together as the manner of some is. There is a place for going to church. There's a definite place for reading your Bible. There's a definite place for your giving of tithes and offerings. There's a place for religious disciplines. But but where does pure and undefiled religion manifest itself most purely? In the taking care of the widow and of the fatherless? In, In the works of compassion and grace? and mercy, and then in keeping yourself unspotted from the world, from sin, from covetousness, from falsehood, from idolatry, from immorality, that is what pure and undefiled religion is defined by. The danger that Satan always tempts us with, that these people fell for, is that we can have this superficial religiosity that God is pleased with, though our hearts and our lives are far from Him. Their religion was superficial. Notice, secondly, their living was ungodly. Their living was ungodly. And by ungodly, I mean that which is not like God. So, that which is wicked, disobedient, immoral, unjust. Chapter 7, verse 5. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, that's implying they weren't executing right judgment. They were taking bribes. They were judging unjustly. If you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, they were doing that. God's saying if you stop doing that, you turn from that, or walk after other gods to your hurt, So they were embracing idolatry. We'll get there in a moment. Then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, verse 8, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. They were self-deceived. They were thinking, I can have this superficial religiosity and that's going to make me okay with God. The temple's here. God's really not going to do what Jeremiah is saying. They brought bought into this lie. Says, Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and burn incense to Baal and walk after others you do not know and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered to do all these abominations? We've been brought into the promised land in order that in my liberty and my freedom I can do all of these things. There's nothing new under the sun. Has this house, verse 11, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Where did Jesus get those words from when he turned over the table of the money exchangers in the temple? From Jeremiah. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. God saw it. And God doesn't just see us on Sunday morning when we got it all put together, or on Wednesday night when we're trying to stay awake as a preacher's preaching. God sees us all the time. And he says to the people that were in sin, thinking they were okay with God, they were living wicked lives of an immorality, of, of great idolatry, which we'll dive into. 
says, no, I see it all. I don't just see you and your temple offerings and your sacrifices. I see everything you do, every word you speak. Let's look to a couple more. 8 and verse 10. Chapter 8 and verse 10. Skip halfway down. It says, Because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. For the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Go to chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. Chapter 9, verse 3, And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil. He's going from one evil thing to the next. And they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother, for every brother will utterly uh, supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Go to verses 8 and 9. Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. God says, Shall not I punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall not I avenge myself on such a nation as this? One more passage. Verses 13 through 16 of that same chapter, chapter 9. And the Lord said, Because they have forsaken My law which I set before them, and have not obeyed My voice. They they worshipped in the temple, they brought their sacrifices, but they had their life. They were living ungodly. They did not obey My voice, nor walked according to it, walked according to the dictates of their own hearts. Don't roll Jimity Cricket's proverb of trusting your heart and follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Jeremiah will say in a little bit, the heart's deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Our heart is fallen. Our heart is often self-deceived. We don't even need somebody else to come along and deceive us. We deceive our own hearts. They followed the dictates of their hearts and it led them to wickedness, ungodliness, disobedience. It led them to Baal. And after the Baals which their fathers for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm going to bring judgment. I'll summarize can't serve God and mammon. You can't truly love God and love the things of the world. First John writes, John writes about it. You can't continue in sin and really know God. If you know Him in a, a hyperbolic way even, you will not sin. And it's almost people can take it in a wrong way to think that you'll be, you'll be completely sinless because he also writes, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unbelievers in that context. And so it's not that you live perfect. Uh, but it is that you live a life of confession, and it is that your life is not defined by the continual practice of habitual sin. That, God, I could just keep doing what I've been doing, continue in sin and disobedience, and God's okay with it because I'm coming to church and giving my tithes and offerings. And Jeremiah is saying, God's saying through the prophet Jeremiah, no, no, your life speaks louder than your ritualistic worship. Let that sink in. Your life of disobedience speaks louder than your ritualistic worship. God is displeased with His people. Thirdly, notice, their idolatry was rampant. 
Oh, there's so many verses that deal with this. We'll read just a few. Chapter 7, go back, verses 17 through 19. Chapter 7, verses 17 through 19. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? He says, the children gather wood and the fathers kindle a fire and the women need dough. He's involving everybody. He's saying, they're all guilty of this. They're all involved in this to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven. Now, that's an idol. That's Ishtar. It's the goddess of uh, basically fertility and prosperity, believed to be the wife of Baal. And so to the Queen of Heaven, uh, one way in which this goddess was worshipped was uh, temple prostitution. And that likely was taking place even in the, the region around Jerusalem, the, the city of God, in the, the high places surrounding Jerusalem. And they pour out their drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? They had embraced wicked idolatry, so wicked even that it, it even gets worse in verses 30 through 31 of chapter 7. They were offering their own children as sacrifices. Think about that for a moment. The people of God had embraced child sacrifice to these false gods. Verse 30, For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. God actually commanded that not to be done. You're never to offer your child as a sacrifice to him, lest there come a day where some people get confused and think that's the way you worship God. The pagans were doing that. Now the people of God were even doing that in worship to those pagan gods. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. We won't read it for sake of time tonight, but you can read it later. It's really a sort of ironic, almost mockery of idolatry. That uh, idols were literally made by the people worshiping them. They had to cut the tree and they had to carve the image and the metal workers had to to form the gold that went over the idol and the the stones that were placed on the idol and the the idol could not move unless the people carried it and moved it to the next location and it's kind of almost a comical mockery of idolatry to think, why in the world are you worshiping these fake idols that are not gods when God is the one true living God? God is the one who has intervened and shown His power over and over and over and over and over and over again. Now we look at idolatry regarding idols, and we do, in a large way in our culture, take chapter 10 to heart, where we think it's kind of funny and peculiar in our culture to worship a statue of some sort. Now there's other cultures um, where even today that's more commonplace, more acceptable. Uh, we, as a general statement, don't you, you don't run into that often, not in the American culture. Uh, but, but Satan's gotten a little clever. We still have our idols, don't we? They just take the form of a dollar bill, the ideology of success and prosperity, prestige, fame, uh, sports. My goodness, if you don't think idolatry exists, go to a Gator gang. They even sing worship songs at the Gator gang, don't they? It's kind of funny. And I know the average person doesn't uh, isn't idolatrously worshiping as they sing that, but some of them rascals are. 
sports in general. I've seen it. I've been amazed getting into the little league stuff with my kids and some of those people. Um, they they sacrifice to their God. It is amazing how obsessive some people can be with sports leagues and the money that can be dropped on it. And I look at it and scratch my head until I, I theologically make sense of it. And it's like, oh, that's a worship issue. That's what it is. They're, they've replaced the community that God calls us to and, and the body of Christ with that identity, with that pursuit. And that is literally their God. That's where they find their joy and they find their hope and they find their meaning and purpose. And hoping little Jimmy becomes the next pro baseball player because they didn't. Um, that um, I'm, I'm meddling, I know. Um, but it does make sense. It's idolatry is what it is. We all, we're, we're an idol-making factory, the heart is. And we all have our idols. We all have our things we elevate of worship. But we just don't have it made of wood and made of stone anymore. We, we have all of these other things that catch our worship, our heart, our sacrifice, our living. Their idolatry was rampant. Lastly and fourthly, notice their hearts were calloused. Go back to chapter 7, verses 27 and 28. Chapter 7, verses 27. We read, Therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. God talking to Jeremiah. You're going to warn them about all of this, but he says of these people, They're not going to hear you. They will not obey you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. Verse 28, So shall I say to them, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. The greatest fault of this people in that day and age is in spite of the prophets that God sends and the many, many warnings of judgment and even signs of God's judgment, they would never listen. You go back up to verse 26, it was like their fathers, they were stiffened uh, in their neck. Their heart was stiff-necked. They were woken up and you, you can't turn it, and you're not quite sure if you just slept wrong or whatever, but it, it, it hurts. That's a stiff neck that you're, you're fixed. They were fixed in their sin. They weren't taking heed to the warnings. that They, they weren't turning. They weren't repenting. Their hearts were, were calloused before the Lord. Their hearts were calloused regarding their sin. Chapter 8. Go down to... Now, ah, we've got a little bit of time. Verse 4 through verse 7. Moreover, you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? Why has this people slidden back Jerusalem in perpetual backsliding? He says, if you drift off, shouldn't you at least return? But but Jerusalem, Judah, was was going down a condition of perpetual backsliding. They were going farther and farther away from the Lord. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. And he says, I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into battle. He says, even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed time. And no one winter's coming. The, the turtle dove, the swift, the swallow observe the time of their coming, but my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. They wouldn't take heed. They wouldn't repent. They wouldn't turn. They were calloused. They were stiff-necked. They were stubborn in their sin. Verses 11 and 12, they 
go halfway through verse 12, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed an abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. That They weren't ashamed of their sin. They, they could not blush anymore. You've heard those words used before by Jeremiah already. They would not blush over their sin. It was so bad that verse 16 of chapter 7, God told Jeremiah, Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. That's a pretty bad place, isn't it? We just had a prayer meeting. You realize sometimes a person can get so stubbornly fixed in their sin that God is in a way saying, don't even pray for them because they won't listen. They're so stiff-necked. They're so hard-hearted. God made that proclamation about His people. Jeremiah came to grand realization about the condition of people. Go to chapter 10 and verse 23. The close, really, of this section of of the book of Jeremiah. Look at verse 23. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Seeing the great wickedness of God's people and their inability to do what was right, Jeremiah came to this grand conclusion about their depravity about the depravity of humanity even, at large, universally. He says, I know the way of man, meaning the right way of humanity, meaning the solution to all of the ailments, all of the things that are wrong in this world and in this life. He says, I know that the way of man is not in himself. We think it is, humanism 101, that we can by our intellect, that we can by our education, that we can by our determination overcome all the things that are wrong in our life, all the things that are wrong in this world. And Jeremiah says, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Is there no balm in Gilead? Where is the spiritual healing in all the works that the people of God were doing? There was destruction. There was devastation. There was judgment that was impending. That There was no healing. And Jeremiah says, I know it's not in man. And I know it's not in man who walks to direct his own path. Where is the healing balm? And we find it in a very well-known passage, chapter 9. Verse 23 and 24, and this will be our final passage for the night. We're just now getting to the sermon. All of that was the introduction. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this that He understands and knows Me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. 
For in these I delight, says the Lord. The healing balm was not found in their wisdom. You're not going to make your life better and your life healed by your own intellect and wisdom and pursuit, by your own philosophies and ideologies. You take the greatest, smartest PhDs that are out there, and they don't have the answer. You look at their lives, and it becomes obvious that they're as broken and messed up as everybody else. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. It's not found in wisdom. It's not found in our strength. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. It's not by our own determination, by our own will of of just forcing it to be so and, and determining it to be so to make it so. No, it's not by our might and strength. Nor the rich man glory in his riches. It's not by our wealth. It's not anything that can be purchased and made right through the, the accumulation of stuff on this earth. Where is the healing balm? Let him who glories, glories in this, that he understands and knows me. It's found in God. It's found in understanding, rightly, God. His loving kindness, first of all. That that He he is a God of grace and mercy and love. That He is long-suffering and compassionate. And he, He loves you and He loves me, but He's also a God of judgment, of justice. He's a God who exercises righteousness in the the earth. He's right in all that He is and all that He does. It's going all the way back to Exodus 34, uh, verses 5 and 6. You need to read it. But the God revealing Himself to to Moses. The Lord, the Lord is is gracious and He's compassionate, but He doesn't forgive uh, iniquity. If the person doesn't turn and seek repentance, seek forgiveness, He will bring judgment to the wicked because He's just. Because He's right. God and God only is the solution, is the healing balm for the depravity of humanity. Pastor Scott sung it before, I think, and says it a little bit often, that Jesus is the answer. The song from how long ago? Jesus is the answer for for the world today. God is the answer. The problem to the sin and brokenness and destruction and devastation of your life and of my life and of all humanity is God. The the reason for it is we don't know God as we ought to know Him. And the solution is to come to understand Him and to know Him as He desires us to know Him. On this side of the cross, we'll close with the words of 1 Corinthians 1.30. But of Him you are. Okay, but of Him you are in Jesus. Who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written by the prophet Jeremiah, that we just read in chapter 9, verse 24. But as it is written, let him who glories glory in this, glory in the Lord, glory in understanding and knowing God. So the question in closing that all of this leads up to is not 
you had a little bit of worship where you come to church and you do a couple of Christianese sort of things. The question is, do you really know God? Do you really understand Him? Do you know His grace and His mercy? He poured out for you through Christ. He became for you wisdom and reputation and redemption. Do you know the sinfulness of your sin in the face of the righteousness of God? It's led you to a humble, broken repentance before Him where you're not calloused-hearted like the people of Israel were, but you come to a, a soft-heartedness before the Lord humility where you say, I am not worthy. I am a sinner condemned, but for the grace of God. Do you you know Him, understand Him, follow Him in His ways now? Not earning your work before Him, your justification before Him, but you know He saved you and therefore your good works flow out of your standing. See, the New Testament Gospel isn't something new altogether. It's been more fully revealed through Christ and what Christ accomplished. But the Gospel, the means of our getting to God, has always been by grace through faith. For Israel, for Jeremiah, for Abraham. Abraham believed and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. It's always been by coming to understand and know God. Do you know Him? Do you understand Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this Word, even from Jeremiah, that written so long ago still speaks so powerfully to us tonight. Lord, I pray that if any in here are like Israel, and they are calloused in their sin, and they are rebellious in their living, and they are just empty and superficial in their worship, uh, that tonight You would bring conviction, that they would see the, the need of repentance, the need of confession. That they would do that doing that, they would come to know Your grace and mercy. They'd come to know that You're a God who delights in forgiveness, who delights in restoring those who turn to You. Lord, thank You for Your salvation that so many of us know. If anybody in here hasn't experienced it, I pray that they will now. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.